The comet Kahootek's arrival in December 1973 inspired musicians around the world. Weather Report, Peter Hamill of Van der Graaff Generator, Bill Carroll, 808 State, For Our Lives, Journey, and R.E.M. all named songs and albums after the comet. In New York City, a jazz concert was held in honor of Kahootek. Or at least, that's how the concert promoters pitched it. It made sense to advertise the concert with a cosmic event since the band leader was from outer space. The concert for the comet Kahootek was performed by Sun Ra and his orchestra, that's spelled with an A-R-K. The show had the atmosphere of an otherworldly carnival involving fire eaters, dancers in platform shoes, projection art, and a huge variety of instruments used in a free jazz arrangement. And while it might be easy to claim it was for the special occasion of the comet, by all accounts, this was a typical night at a Sun Ra concert. Sometime in the fall, we're going to see in the sky a meteorite. You hear about it? Comet Kahootek is on its way. We call it Starseed. Every comet is an individual which can, in principle, uh, provide new information. Visible between mid-November and late January, it will eventually be as bright or brighter than the famous Halley's Comet of 1910. I do feel that the comet, although it was not visible and as spectacular as they had thought, that it has had some effect in our atmosphere. Now, how about the economy? Uh, we're visitors on this planet Earth. We're not going to be here very long. We've got to get back in touch with the greater picture. Sun Ra was from Saturn, but he was born Herman Poole Blunt in Birmingham, Alabama. For Ra, his given name was too Christian, so he instead claimed he was named after the African-American occult magician Black Herman. He always denied his surname was Blunt. It might seem silly to hide such a detail, but Rob believed in the importance of names. And considering the length biographers have gone to confirm his real name, perhaps he was on to something. Sun Rob began his musical career in the segregated South, playing in big bands. In 1936, he went to college to study music education on a scholarship. But within a year, he was abducted by aliens and everything changed. Here's Christopher Eddy, who documents Sun Ra and his orchestra on his website and podcast, Sun Ra Archive. The foundational experience that he, that he cited as being a contributor to his reinvention and reimagining of his persona was that he had an extraterrestrial experience while he was in teacher's college in Birmingham, Alabama in the late 30s, early 40s, where he was contacted by extraterrestrials and transported through a beam of light, what he later referred to as transmolecularization, and was given knowledge and wisdom that would change the course of his life. At least, that's the story Sun Ra told of his origins. He described being transformed and beamed to Saturn where antenna-wearing beings told him to drop out of college and to speak through his music. Although he never spoke of the incident publicly until the 1950s, after which time he repeated it often, he remembered recording the experience in a journal. Later he found his college roommates reading the journal and laughing at the outlandish tale. Whatever the case, the story predates the first widely publicized alien abduction of Betty and Barney Hill in 1961. 
and that's kind of cited by the culture and, and ufologists as being the first North American mainstream reported extraterrestrial experience. But Sunrise goes back before that. Christopher Eddy had his own strange experience in college, which got him hooked on Sun Ra, although it is considerably more earthly. It was at the first Sun Ra concert he ever attended. But what ended up happening during this second set was that I fell asleep. I found the music so, so peaceful that I just closed my eyes and eventually drifted off to sleep. And in retrospect, I'm convinced that the reason I became an instantaneous, lifelong, hardcore fan was that the music resonated with my subconscious. The music that so gripped Eddie's subconscious was produced by Sun Ra fulfilling the alien directive to spread a message through his music. But what was that message? Equal to any of Sun Ra's concerns, he was a teacher and he was an educator and he wanted to convey to the citizens of planet Earth that there was a better reality available to us. And that better reality was attainable through sound and light vibration, through music, through community, but also through teaching and sharing these messages. Ra was a messenger of an optimistic future, but was also deeply concerned with history. Even in his name, Ra evoked ancient Egypt as a way to remind African-Americans of their civilizational legacy and significance. He described a trajectory of black history from Egypt to an egalitarian future in space. Here's the message musician and music collector Derek Higgins hears in Sun Ra's music. I'm a planetary citizen, and beyond that, I'm a universal citizen. In other words, I realize that in Sun Ra, it, this is this is part of what he talks about, is that the literal atoms and ions of our being are not separate from the entire universe. We are stardust, and of course, science has says that it's proven. You know, um, literally, the amount of stardust in the body. Right? I think that a big part of what you can take from Sun Ra's uh, message, if you look into it is one that can be parsed to, to help deal with racism. You know, the you know, first off, um, giving um, a message of dignity to the black race, um, the importance of Nubia, Nubianism, right? Okay, not to place us above or be beyond anyone, but just the whole idea that, you know, here's our rightful place in the history, which we don't have, you know, because of colonization. This vision is key to Sun Ra's unique approach to social activism. His ideas would later be classified as Afrofuturism. The philosophy, aesthetic, and genre intersects African diaspora and technology. While science fiction often assumes a future of a white-centered culture, Afrofuturism imagines what black culture could become. Some popular examples of Afrofuturism include musical artist Janelle Monet the Black Panther franchise, and A Wrinkle in Time. Sun Ra channeled this sensibility into his music and by doing so, pushed the boundaries of jazz. Use of African rhythm in a free jazz setting with this space organ that far back at the beginning of the 60s, 
was no one else was doing anything like it. Here's an example from his concert for Kahootek. Afrofuturism is often utopic, academic Alondra Nelson observes the genre also explores alienation and otherness. Sun Ra expresses this conflict of identity in a 1971 lecture at Berkeley, a few years before his concert for Kahootek. A lot of black people don't know they're black. They'd rather be anything but what they are. And they wrong that these other nations going to be, like I read about a black woman, she, she met an African man. And she went to Africa, and she told the truth. She'd been in Africa almost four years, and she said she's still not African. The African women be helping her, trying to teach her that ways and everything, and she almost ready to give up. She'd do everything what they tell her. They still haven't recognized her as an African woman yet. They still say she's Western-minded. Now, that's very difficult there for a black woman to go over there and be black. So the whole thing is, uh, the reason I'm saying, it's so difficult. I'd rather for black folks to go to Jupiter, Mars, and Venus. It's easier than you going to Africa and trying to be an African because they got a thing too. Like an African told me that black folks come over there and they be making fun of their culture. Ra was no stranger to alienation. Besides growing up in the segregated South, in 1942, he was a conscientious objector after being drafted. During the ensuing court case, Ra promised if he was sent to war, he would use a service weapon to kill the first high-ranking military officer he had the opportunity to. He was thrown in jail for a time, but eventually given a forestry job. His family was deeply embarrassed by the whole incident, and it strained many of his relationships. As a conscientious objector, Ra cited religious objections to war and killing. This was just the beginning of his unorthodox religious views. He felt the Bible had been used to suppress African Americans and the potential of their Egyptian roots. In the 1950s, Sun Ra legally changed his name while practicing in secret with what would become his orchestra. He was not alone in changing his name, as it was a popular act of reclaiming one's identity in the civil rights movement, especially with the Black Panthers. It was during this time in Chicago that he started street preaching. His words were popular with the Black Muslims for their anti-Christian bent, However, Ra didn't throw out the Bible entirely. He called his method of reading the Bible permutating, a process of deconstruction and radical reinterpretation of words, often using numerology. He would divine new meaning for the book, which he felt had been improperly used to manipulate African Americans, even in black churches. When I read the history of human beings, I don't see any progress. Everything is standing still. Like humanity's on a treadmill, just walking and walking and walking. And the faster they walk, the tighter they get, and the further they are away from getting anywhere. They should see that if you're going somewhere, the scenery changes. But it's still the same old dull scenery, and nothing changes. They say history repeats itself. If it repeats itself, then nobody is getting anywhere. If the history itself is no good, it's not going to do anybody any good to be part of a history if that history is bad. And it's bad, all right. It's worse than anything that any writer could write about. Of all the schools they have, and all the philosophers sent to them, it's not supposed to be like that on this planet, but you see it is. In his speeches, poetry, and leaflets handed out on the streets of Chicago, Sun Ra explained symbolic connections between words and idioms in a free-flowing train of consciousness. 
A unifying theme is that he asked his audience to look beyond a literal understanding of the Bible, language, and the world. This can make it difficult, if not impossible, to definitively describe Ra's ideas. Just like the multifaceted prism that he held up on the space as the place cover, there are thousands and millions of ways to look at Sun Ra. And by looking at him in all of those facets is the only way that we can come close to even hoping to have a, having a remote understanding of the volume of work that he achieved in his time and the multitude of perspectives and infinity that he conveyed in his message. It's only our perspectives that we bring to it that perhaps ultimately only betray ourselves because of our short-sightedness and our and our our struggle as a species to be able to look at the world with balance and multiplicity. Sun Ra's breakdowns of language could sound silly and were often reminiscent of a conspiracy theorist reading something out of nothing, complete with complex chalkboard diagrams. However, he was an advocate for people making these equations themselves, and if we consider his ideas in this way, observing the form rather than the function, his ideas were not dissimilar from post-structuralist philosophy. Even Plato taught a similar concept. Plato believed writing was a falsehood that was only an imitation of an imitation of true knowledge. Likewise, the post-structuralists wrote that culture and knowledge is based on a false assumption that language has fixed meaning. The post-structuralists asked us to reconsider assumptions of fixed meaning in language and reject binary categorization. Similarly, Ra recognized that texts like the Bible had been assigned a fixed cultural meaning which had, in reality, evolved over the years. His teachings rarely arrive at a fixed conclusion, but invited the student to reconsider the stability of a text's meaning. But this is only one interpretation. The message that Christopher Eddy takes from Ra is one that has an infinity of possibilities. The space and time that we inhabit is infinite and omniversal. Every possibility, every truth, every positive, every negative, every interpretation, every permutation that is possible and that we can conceive exists. And he conveyed this in the music that he made. He touched upon a multitude of musical styles within his framework, a multitude of visual representations in his artwork in the clothes that the band wore, in the stage presentations. So infinity is the most important concept. There is no one way. There is only the way that the individual chooses to pursue. Sun Ra's philosophical musings were not separate from his music. Musicians who worked with Ross said he would enforce a type of discipline so every decision made, no matter how mundane it seemed, had meaning and intention. 
He would lecture them on his philosophy, but even band members who thought it was nonsense credited him for his humor. When asked a question, he was infamous for non-sequitur responses. Dancer Judith Holton said that members of the orchestra projected their dreams onto Sen Ra, and he would let them. June Tyson, she, as a lightning rod, co almost like a co-pilot with Sun Ra, had a lot to say with the way the band would embody Sun Ra's ideas and make them emotional. In their performances, the band would dress in metallic robes and don headgear alluding to Egyptian headdresses and alien antenna. The orchestra's most iconic song, Space is the Place, is a chaotic, layered demonstration of the fundamental themes Rod dealt in. Locking in at 21 minutes, the song was first released as a record of the same name in 1973, the same year as the orchestra's concert for the Comet Kahootek. The album was the soundtrack for a movie that came out a year later, also titled Space is the Place, starring Ra himself. The production was not unlike the free jazz of the orchestra. Ra would change lines as he went, and the credited writer was only brought on after the shooting began. During post-production, Ra became obsessed with editing the movie himself and never seemed happy with the final product. The music is different here. The vibrations are different. Not like Planet Earth. Planet Earth sound of guns, anger, frustration. There was no one to talk to up in Planet Earth to understand. We set up a colony for black people here. See what they can do on the planet all down without any white people there. They could drink in the beauty of this planet. In the movie, Sun Ra is from Saturn. Sun Ra was from Saturn, or at least that's what he'd tell people when they asked where he was from. Sun Ra was not born on Saturn, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't take him seriously when he says he was from Saturn. We literally automatically think that that he meant that he was born on the planet Saturn in Earth's solar system and somehow was transported from that planet to Earth in a physical body. Like something out of science fiction or Star Wars on a spaceship. And he used those connotations and those images so that we could understand or start to understand what he was saying. But that's not necessarily what he meant. Saturn is, you know, a, a sign of the horoscope. He could have been referring to that. He could have been referring to that and all the other things he professed about himself in a multitude of ways. So that's another thing that I've learned from him is that you don't only think literally. You think in permutations, you think in connotations, you think in shades and vibrations and equations 
and balance. The power of language was something Sun Ra cared deeply about. His insistence on his extraterrestrial origins inspired his fans to consider their own origins and their futures. Derek Higgins is one such fan. You know, if you look at history and antiquity, there's this whole body of knowledge that mainstream science and geology is still having difficulty with regarding the so-called actual um, origins of humans on this planet. The whole Anunnaki and all that thing, right? So if you take that stuff even halfway seriously, what, what Sun Ra's saying totally fits into that. You know, and so with that um, perspective, that's why I say personally, it's not important to me how seriously I take it because those are things I just don't know. But I find it interesting and I find it completely plausible that these things could possibly be real. And part of it is the power of what Sun Ra did with his music, you know. That's a big testimony to his head trip, you know. I don't think it was just delusion. <laughs> I don't. By reinventing himself, Ra was able to write his own story and empowered others to do so as well. The most important thing that I've learned from Sun Ra uh, as a person, as a being, is that regardless of how impossible it may seem based on our society and our circumstances, is that our lives and our time is ours alone to define. Our reality is ours to define. Our identity is ours to define. And that the major shortcoming of our existence is that we accept the definitions and the restrictions of the power structures that we live within and that we perceive to rule, rule us to define the life that we live. But although Sun Ra saying he was from Saturn shouldn't be dismissed offhand, it doesn't mean we should take it with grave seriousness either. Life is fun and we need to see the humor and the comedy in the ridiculousness and the absurdity of our existence and to be able to laugh. And that when we're confronted with an individual that for so many years, so diligently recorded, composed and performed and shared these very deep and urgent messages with the world that of course are serious, that Sun Ra understood the humor and the absurdity of it. And that we shouldn't just take this seriousness at face value and that he could laugh at himself and he could laugh at life and laugh at the things that he was talking about. And that the key, part of the, key, the keys to understanding him is to be able to laugh too. Ra's music and unique perspective continue to inspire musicians and music fans alike. Ra's concert for the comic Kahootek may have been named by a concert promoter, which is fitting. Because while Sun Ra can be easily lumped in with the New Age movement that seized on Kahootek as a signifier, he was really from a planet of his own creation. The most important thing that I take away from Sun Ra 
is that our time is ours to make of it what we choose and what we wish. And that is exactly what Sun Ra did. And he was, as I observe, happy with and confident of and satisfied with that. And what we choose to do with it as observers, as followers and as researchers is based on our own agenda and our own ideas and our own choices. And part of being a mystic and a mystifier and a teacher is that that riddle and that myth and that mystery and those mental gymnastics, I believe are intentional, not only to Sunra defining who he believed and wished to be as a being, but as a legacy that he left behind, those questions and those conundrums are part of the built-in mental and spiritual exercise. Because those answers, whatever they may be, are each of ours alone. There is no universal answer to the question of life, the universe, or the question of sunrod. And I believe that he explicitly understood this. And part of why he laid out his history and his message the way that he did was to not make it easy, to force people to confront their own ideas, their own realities, and how they choose to spend their own lives. Sun Ra recorded many of his concerts. His concert for the comic Kahootek was not released until around his death in 1995, but little is recorded about the concert other than that it was a characteristically elaborate show that started 90 minutes late. To close, here is wisdom from Sun Ra's 1971 Berkeley lecture alongside part of his 1973 Comet for Kahootek album. This book takes you back to the root of words because the meaning of words haven't changed, although some people speak of dead language, there's no such thing as a dead language because you have the words in this language. So, they're not dead, you just don't know where they came from. But these words from ancient days are affecting people today. The people are gonna to have to make a research in words. I know I'm representing music. Music is a language, and my music speaks of everything. So in order to understand the music, you would have to know some of the things that I have studied, which helped me to uh, project myself as I am doing. For instance, if you're studying something about Bach or Brahms and Beethoven, you need to study their life too. So actually, I don't consider myself as having a life, but I do consider myself as having studied. So therefore, you need to know some of the books that I studied because a lot of things that I found out, people don't know about it. So we come down to words again as to how they're affecting people today. Take the word convict. Convicts 
get convicted. And it's also moved over into conviction. Now when you get to that word, it moves somewhere else. Because the person can have a conviction about something and they got an idea about it. See? So now, therefore, when you have words that move two ways on you, then you have to be careful. Because here you have this word convict, convicted, conviction. Now this word conviction moves over, if you have an idea of something, you've got an impression of something. You have knowledge concerning something. Now an impression moves over into image, a reflection. Well, reflection, a person can reflect on something, they're thinking about it. The reflection moves over into image. All these things affect people. It doesn't matter whether you know about them or not. It's just like if you are on a lake and somebody throws a large stone in the lake. It doesn't matter whether you know about it or not. It's going to affect the boat you're in. It'll do something to the lake. What Comet Kahootek left behind is written and produced by London Homer Wombi. Music by Naramata. You can download the soundtrack at naramata.bandcamp.com. Additional voices and support provided by Madison Volley. Check out the five other episodes to learn about the countercultural oddities left in Kahootek's wake.